Hi everyone, Phil Seymour here. I'm joined today by Tim Boone, the author of our awesome guide to the issues we currently face as an industry with respect to the environment and sustainability. If you're joining this podcast and it's safe to do so, you may want to have our report alongside you as I'll use the report to create some Q&A between myself and Tim. If not, don't worry, it will make sense without having it in front of you, just in case you are listening during your commute to work or flying across the globe, hopefully offsetting your CO2 emissions en route. So good morning, Tim. Morning. Can you start by telling us what the issue is? After all, some may say that aviation only emits 2 to 3% of CO2 emissions. So why are we even talking about it? Yeah, morning, Phil. Um, we could easily point the finger to other industries such as construction, agriculture, marine, land transport, manufacturing, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the growth of aviation is a key differentiator. Uh, the total global aviation emissions are around 2 to 3% to date. If we don't offset or importantly reduce emissions, this figure could rise significantly as other industries begin to decarbonize. Um, it's much easier for other industries such as the manufacturing and automotive sector to decarbonize because the technology challenges that aviation faces are far greater than developing a battery that can power a car for 300 miles. Now, I don't want to belittle the automotive sector because the step forwards in technology even in the last 10 years have been astronomical and they still continue to amaze me. The technology just simply isn't there to power a 90-ton narrow-body aircraft with a battery for 4,000 nautical miles. It doesn't simply mean that we stop flying but we just continue to innovate until the technologies become feasible. But getting back to your question, um, we've really got to be careful not to underestimate the impact of these figures. Two to three percent sounds like a fairly low number, but in real terms, if global aviation was a country, it would rank as one of the top 10 global emitters. And if we use the same context of classing aviation as a country, and we have a look at the positives here, it would rank at 20th in the world in terms of GDP, generating somewhere around about 700 billion of GDP per year. And if you're looking further into the future in 15 years time, um, we'll directly contribute to one, around about 1.5 trillion in world GDP. Well, those are definitely some big numbers. Um, and, and let me also just provide everybody with IBA's context here. Uh, we're not attempting to greenwash or neither have we been shamed, but uh, we have direct evidence from meetings we've had with various investors in the industry, uh, that they are feeling the need to perhaps move away from aviation investments, such as you know, airport investment or even aircraft lending, or lending into aircraft structures, as there is a sense that it's not doing enough to reduce CO2 emissions. So Tim, can you give us the basics? I mean, how is that CO2 number measured? Uh, it, it's really all down to fuel burn, isn't it? Yeah, so one, one kilo of fuel burnt releases approximately 3.16 kilos of CO2. That happens because the engine compresses the air significantly and the combustion process creates massive expansion of emissions. About three kilograms of CO2 is created and pushed into the atmosphere. However, we must also bear in mind that other emissions are emitted from combusting the jet fuel, such as nitrous oxides, carbon monoxide, oxides of sulfur and particulate matter. However, when considering CO2 emissions per flight, a number of factors also come into play with the efficiency of an aircraft type, weather conditions, maintenance conditions, sector length, the payload on board the aircraft and the passenger load factor. Interestingly, when calculating the individual passenger share of emissions on a sector, the emissions of a premium class passenger is double that of those in the economy due to the additional space used and the extra weight in the aircraft when compared to higher density economy seating. Yeah, I think that's uh, something which uh, the likes of Wizz Air have picked up on. And I think they, 
they sort of uh, alluded to the fact that you know business class should be should be banned. I mean that's that's really their angle there, is it, Tim? Yeah, I mean they want to they want a blanket ban on all business class seats and on flights less than five hours, based on the notion that business class passengers emit double the amount of emissions. But if you look at it in real terms, it's a little bit of a false claim, really. If you compare it to a business class seating configuration, for example, on a British Airways A320, all they really do is blank off the middle seat on the aircraft, serve you a nice meal. So the only real increase in emissions in that scenario would be that the CO2 per passenger would increase by reducing the load factor by a couple of percent and then perhaps increasing the weight on the aircraft by having a nice bottle of champagne and some croissants on board. I mean, realistically, we aren't going to see any operators that offer a similar service shy away from offering premium seating because the yield to these passengers bring us simply too great. And unless regulation comes into play that bans business seating, then we're probably not going to see airlines put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. Yeah, so just going back to that two to three percent of global emissions, that's just for the day to day fuel burn or, or does it include the manufacturing and assembly process? The figure only really considers the direct emissions from day-to-day -day operations from an aircraft or in simpler terms just from the exhaust pipe emissions and um, manufacturing is another key area where aviation can decarbonize and massive work is already going in to reduce the carbon life cycle of aircraft and their associated components as, as mentioned in issue one of the report the clean sky 2 joint undertaking um, challenges the production of aircraft by applying an eco design ethos to aircraft design and production and applies a cradle to cradle approach to assessing the full life cycle of the individual components and the impacts on the earth's resources and energy consumption during manufacture. As part of issue two of IBA's environmental report, which is due to come out around about Q3 of 2020, we will cover this key issue in much more detail. Yeah, and I think just to re-emphasize that, you know, this, this report that we've issued isn't the, the end of the show. Um, We've had a lot of feedback. Uh, for those of you listening, you know, please do do sign up to us uh, on uh, follow us on LinkedIn because that's going to be the quickest way to get the updates. Uh, one of the things that has become apparent, and some of the questions we've been getting from investors, is there are sort of multiple sources of information. Uh, in our report, we quote sort of nine to ten groups or organisations that are involved in this matter. Can you explain some of the key groups and their relevance to this? For example, I mean, IATA and ICAO, I'm, I'm aware of those myself, but then we've got IPCC, ICCT, CSJU2. Um, it's, it's just a nightmare in terms of finding our way through who we should be listening to. Yeah, I mean, it, it all gets a bit confusing with all these acronyms. So in terms of international regulations, ICAO is the main agency if we're focusing on the environmental regulation and is a specialised agency of the United Nations. So it works with 193 member states and industry groups to reach agreements on international civil aviation standards, recommended practices, as well as policies that support safe, economically sustainable and environmentally responsible aviation activities. So they're the main agency, basically, that when considering regulations or market-based measures such as Corsia. In contrast, uh, we've got I IATA. It's a trade association that advocates the interest of airlines and challenges unreasonable rule change and holds regulators and governments to account. But regulators need scientific proof and predictions on the effects of climate change on the world, and this is where the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, comes in. The IPCC provides government scientific information that can be used to develop climate policies which influence regulation on aviation sector and, and wider policy. 
Okay, um, and yeah, Coursera, of course, is the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international airlines. The EU ETS, I mean, that, that's been around for a while, but that received quite a lot of opposition. And I, I recall several years ago that many overseas airlines sort of point blank refused to join in, uh, even, you know, some counter blocking of EU airlines from the various joint networks. So, you know, what, what's happened to the EU ETS there, Tim? Yeah, you're right, Phil. So the original scope of the EU ETS was to cover all flights to and from EU airports, but it was blocked following strong international and industry pressure in 2012. And it was initially postponed and the scope was reduced to only cover intra-EU flights and to stop the clock on the market-based measure. After Corsair was agreed by ICAO in uh, 2016, the EU Commission proposed to, to postpone the EU ETS on extra EEA flights until 2024, when the true effects of Corsair on international aviation is truly known. Yeah, and I, I mean, I find that is one of the one of the issues that outsiders to our industry have is, you know, we've known about the issue for a long time. We had a scheme back in 2012, which was aiming within the EU states to progress that. And here we are you know, eight years later with, you know, looking at Corsia. So, um, yeah, how voluntary and mandatory is Corsia? Yes and no. I mean, so I mean, when we're only in the pilot phase of Corsia at the moment, and all airlines that undertake international flights need to monitor, report, and verify their CO2 emissions. Um, so this started in January 2019, um, and the data collected from 2019 and 2020 will then be used to generate the baseline figure for which the which will be the data for where all emissions will be balanced against and offset against. The pilot phase only comes into play between 2021 and 2023, and the first phase is rolled out between 2024 and 2026. But these are only voluntary, which isn't really good enough in my opinion. Um, the second phase starts in 2027 and is mandatory, but Corsair, as discussed in the report, only covers international aviation and not domestic flights, which is a key emitter for industry as a whole. The argument here is to allow the other states to uh, develop their own market-based measures or regulations, but I personally don't think it's enough is being done when you look at the United States, for example. I mean, they've got 18% share of all global CO2 emissions. It's quite a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we find there's a there's a difference, not necessarily of opinion, but a, a, when we're talking to investors and funds in Europe, there's a, a different mentality compared to the rest of the world. But also a couple of things that have come up, uh, questions on carbon pricing and the, the fuel tax elements here. So how does that fit in and how is it relevant to reducing emissions? So the fundamental idea of carbon pricing is to create a market price for carbon and it's traded on various commodity, commodity exchanges around the world. As a result of this, it creates a supply and demand within the market. But in real terms of the real cost for aviation, we have seen figures being estimated for about eight to 20 US dollars in 2020 and for one tonne of carbon. And if you look in further thought forward to 2035, we've seen estimates for up to 20 to 40 US dollars, some even higher. As the cost of carbon increases, this will incentivize operators to bring in new low emitting aircraft. But Corsair is unlikely to realistically reduce the exhaust emissions of aircraft because it is an offsetting scheme and doesn't really have any real regulations to reduce the direct exhaust emissions of the aircraft. And the real CO2 reductions or sequestration is done elsewhere. Yeah, I think um, 
the, the other thing that's come up recently when we saw issues with, with Flybe was quite a lot of domestic politics in the UK, you know, not just on, you know, whether you should support uh, an airline in any case, but also uh, quite a lot of chat about the domestic flights, the efficiency of other transport means. So uh, I think this whole thing about the UK uh, air passenger duty, governments are taking their own initiatives, but one of the big, uh, one of the big complaints amongst sort of UK operators was that the money raised by the air passenger duty doesn't actually go back into the, the aviation uh, reduction of CO2. It just goes into the general coffers. Anyway, back on track. Um, we recently saw a so-called green financed ATR transaction. Um, how did that work, Tim? So this deal between Avation and Brathens and was financed by Deutsche Bank. Uh, the deal follows the green loan principles, which was structured by the Loan Market Association. And I strongly recommend you Google this. It's quite easy to find. If you've got a little bit of spare time after this. I, it's a good read. A green loan is effectively an instrument made available to finance new or existing green projects. And the use of the proceeds, in this case an aircraft, must follow the key components of the green loan principles. This all came about because Brathens needed to replace their aging regional jets with ATR 72600s. And as part of the green loan verification process, an ESG rating agency assessed the green credentials of this transaction and was of the opinion that the fleet renewal was aligned with the green loan principles. Aside from just renewing the fleet, Brazens have also had groundbreaking um, policies in, in terms of good environmental practice and offsets 110% of its emissions and aims to be fossil fuel three by 2030, um, which obviously contributes towards the operator qualifying for this loan as well. Yeah, and I think we've seen a lot of uh, airlines announcing their um, their strategies towards the uh, environment and sustainability. I think there's, um, uh, I mean, here we had a situation where the airline was operating, let's say, relatively old regional jets, uh, replacing them with turboprops, which are more fuel efficient than the regional jets, uh, depending on the sector length, of course. So I can see how this was reasonably bespoke. I do wonder whether you know every new aircraft could be seen as replacing an older, inefficient aircraft. Therefore, will everything become um, a green loan in the future? Uh, I think the industry needs to work very closely. I mean, you mentioned Avation as a lessor, Deutsche Bank as the uh, provider of the, the senior debt. Um, there does need to be a lot more coordination to make sure that we, you know, not everything is seen as green financing, um, which is um, obviously a subject for discussion uh, in the coming months or years. Uh, moving on, um, will we ever see an all-electric aircraft? I mean, you, you opened up the conversation, Tim, by saying, you know, moving, you know, the technology in cars into, uh, you know, a 90-ton narrow body uh, isn't quite there yet. Um, is hydrogen the way to go? Could you briefly describe the uh, current thinking there? Yeah, so hydrogen is definitely a solution that we could consider for longer haul sectors for, for sure. I mean, it's it's more about refining that technology and actually being able to put it into the aircraft. Um, for the short term, at least, we're probably going to see hybrid technologies. Um, I mean, you've got Airbus developing the EFAN-X project, uh, which effectively has a two-ton 
supercapacitor on board the aircraft, um, and that basically uses power to augment the um, augment the takeoff phase, which is obviously the most power-hungry phase of any flight. Um, so that's a, that's a short-term solution. We've got electric aircraft, unlikely to see that for anything above 20 seats, really. Um, I mean, so we've seen one electric aircraft fly in Canada, that was Horizon Air, um, but that's only really maximum of 10 seats in that aircraft, and it's not really groundbreaking in terms of being able to provide something to commercial aviation, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, with regard to our report, uh, we've had some feedback already, the perception of how little air traffic management is doing um, and how much fuel could be saved by more efficient air traffic management and airport taxiway management. Uh, this should be an easy win. Um, I think we can all relate to this issue, flying around in circles over North and South London for 40 minutes or so, you know, having had a, a lengthy transatlantic flight or perhaps even a, a relatively short flight. I, I experienced this flying back from Dublin recently. Um, you know, 30 minutes between Dublin and London in terms of direct flight time, but then spent 40 minutes wasting fuel and then, then sitting outside the terminal waiting for a jetway to become free. So uh, I think we've all experienced those sorts of issues. Um, and you know, with engines running, you're just burning CO2 or burning fuel and emitting CO2 without any real reason. Um, so I think, um, yeah, what, what's happening on that air traffic management or ATM front? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all well and good spending millions to improve the efficiency of an aircraft, but it completely goes out the window when you find yourself in a holding pattern or you don't have the most direct trajectory to your destination. And I think it really is a key issue that needs to be resolved. Um, there is a lot of work going into it already. We've got CESAR, which is the uh, Single European Sky Air Transport Management Research. Um, it's probably one of the most ambitious air transport management projects in the world. One of the main aspects is to have better trajectory management and improve aircraft separation to reduce the amount of time the aircraft is in the air. It also aims to have smoother ascent and descent phases during flight. Um, requires a lot more cross-border compatibility between the various air traffic controllers in order to improve point-to-point -point air traffic trajectories. Um, I mean, we have seen some pretty wild solutions that have been suggested. We have seen some uh, suggestions of aircraft flying transatlantic formations, uh, like a flock of geese migrating to Africa for the for the winter, um, or aircraft taking off with a uh, reduced fuel load and doing a military-style air-to-air refueling, which I thought was quite a novel idea. But Yeah, well, I suppose uh, we shouldn't dismiss everything. We need to do some brainstorming, but some of these don't seem to be very practical solutions to myself. Another near-term solution, we hear a lot about sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, what are the options available for airlines today? Yeah, like you say, SAP or sustainable aviation fuel is uh, one of the key near-term solutions to reduce overall emissions. And there are a few different types of SAP that operators can use as a drop-in fuel. Um, research from NASA has shown that by using SAF, Particle emissions can be reduced as much as 50 to 70% with other agencies quoting up to 90% reductions and around about 60% greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the most commercially available fuel is Heifer SPK. Um, we will be able to find this in the report. Um, it's the most typical biofuel out there, uses vegetable oils, but isn't abundantly available, especially for the quantities needed for aviation. Um, we have seen two major operators, British Airways and Delta, both enter into SAF projects, 
with British Airways investing into a landfill to jet fuel production facilities in the north of England. Um, they expect to have about 25% of BA's fuel being produced from there by 2050. Um, and Delta Airlines agreeing to a 10 million gallon per year agreement with SAF producer Givo. Well, excellent. Um, that's a, a very good summary of the report we, we've just recently published. Just to emphasise that we will be providing updates to this report in the coming months because we've, I think we've only really just uh, scratched the surface. Um, so uh, many thanks, Tim. Uh, for those of you heading to ISTAT Americas, March the 1st to 3rd, Tim and I will be hosting a lunch and round table event on Monday, March the 2nd, alongside the ISTAT team. Uh, you can sign up for that event via the ISTAT website. Uh, you do need to be registered for the event in order to qualify. Um, and we, we do have a great group of table hosts. We have Rolls-Royce, Airbus, Boeing, Avocet uh, joining us to talk about the Corsia and EU ETS aspects. And we do have uh, a bank and a lessor all providing their take on the environment and sustainability issues. Uh, it's limited spaces, so do get in quick and uh, look forward to providing another update podcast in the coming months. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. Thanks.